So we're going to give a big welcome to everyone over in Quakertown who are joining us right now. Uh, miss you guys a ton. I hope those of you who have never met Charles before have had the opportunity to meet him up there uh, today. And I'm looking forward to being with you guys next week for our second Easter services, whether Saturday or Sunday. Uh, looking forward to seeing you guys there. Make sure you are inviting like crazy. Invite everyone and anyone. And I said the same thing to you guys here in Southerton. And the reason that we want you to invite people is because we believe that the message of Jesus is a message of hope. And we believe that there are a lot of people who need to hear that message. And we are going to give that message boldly and clearly next week. And we want as many people to hear it. So make sure you're inviting here in Sowerton and make sure you're inviting in Quakertown. And it's kind of weird, right? It's kind of weird thinking next week is Easter, right? It doesn't really feel that way. It feels more like next week is Christmas. <laughs> What's up with that? No more snow, okay? No more snow. None of that. We're done with that. But the reality is, is that next week is Easter, and today, traditionally, is what the church celebrates as Palm Sunday. It's the day when we remember a story in the Bible about when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and there was this big celebration, there was this big spectacle, there was this parade, people were going nuts. And that kind of kicks off what we observe as the last week of Jesus' life. And then this kind of kicks off what some people know as Passion Week and some people know as Holy Week. Basically, you're just following Jesus from Palm Sunday all the way through Good Friday and ultimately Easter Sunday. And so we're taking that look today. And as we look at this story today, we'll see this tragic irony will experience this tension that, if you really take a look at it, is very similar to what we experience today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Mark. You can turn to the book of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, there are different ways you can follow along. You can read from the screens up front. You can take your phone out or your tablet out and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. Both are great apps for reading the Bible. Or you can take one of the Bibles from, that we have in both campuses of Calvary Church. In Southerton, they're in the seat rack right in back of you uh, or in front of you, whichever. Probably want to take the one in front of you. It's kind of awkward going like this. In Quakertown, they're on carts in the back of the room. Uh, and so they're on both sides. And whether you are in Southerton or in Quakertown, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. It's our gift to you. It's free. We believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life. And so we want you to have a Bible. If you've never read it and you'd like help with that, give us a call. We'd love to walk you through that. But we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. 
They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So the first thing I want to do is I kind of want to take a look at Jesus' instructions in regards to that cult at the beginning. There are some very detailed instructions, right? He says, you're going to go into the town. As soon as you get in, you're going to see this cult. And he gives them step-by-step instructions. And he, and he gives them explanations of what to do. He says, this could happen. This is what you're going to do. And he gives them all of these detailed instructions. Jesus knew exactly what he wanted. And he knew exactly what was going to happen. He's orchestrating this entire event. He's orchestrating this entire occurrence. And, and what's interesting is that you see Jesus being so detailed. You see him being so intentional with what he's doing. And there's something you notice if you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're reading through the Gospels, if you're reading through the four books that are about Jesus' life. What you notice is that prior to this point, you never read about Jesus riding an animal. After this point, you never read about Jesus riding an animal. He's always walking. He's always walking. This is out of the ordinary. This isn't normal for what we're reading about Jesus. And yet he is so specific in his requests. And the reason is, is that Jesus is making a deliberate declaration. A deliberate declaration. He is deliberately declaring himself king, and he's deliberately declaring himself the Messiah. And you can kind of read that, and you're like, I'm not really sure how you're getting that just from these instructions. And what you need to understand is that this story is in all four of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you read all of them, you get a little bit more of the richness. You get a little bit more of the depth of the story. And as you do that, you begin to understand some of what is going on. And so if we go and look at Matthew and his account of this story, we go through Jesus giving the same instructions, and then Matthew says something interesting. He says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. And on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus' deliberate declaration of his kingship 
is intricately done in fulfillment of prophecy. As you read the different accounts, as you read the different uh, writings of this story, you will see that it is saturated in the Old Testament. That there are prophecies fulfilled, that there are words from the Old Testament in these passages. Jesus is deliberately declaring himself king. He's deliberately declaring himself Messiah. And prior to this, while Jesus says this truth to many people, he also says something very interesting that kind of just blows your mind when you put it with this story. Oftentimes, Jesus, when, when he heals someone, when there's a miracle happening, he tells the person, see that you tell no one. See that you tell no one. Don't tell anyone about this. Up until that point, the revealing of who he is is kind of held at bay. It, it, it's kind of kept in check. Jesus says it's not yet time. Don't tell anyone. See that you tell no one. But with this entry, all that changes. The messianic secret is over. Jesus deliberately declares who he is. And what makes that more astounding is that at this point, Jesus is a marked man. You see, the religious leaders of that time, the, the leaders of the, of, the, of the Jewish people, they didn't like Jesus. They wanted him dead. And they made that public. He knew this. He knew he was a marked man. The people with him knew that he was a marked man. And so he goes to the very city, he goes to the very place that the people who want him killed are at. Why? Why not just avoid Jerusalem? Why not just avoid that place? And, and if you have to go there, if it's because you have to go to that city, why, why not just kind of do it quietly? You know, let's, let's go in closer to when it's dark. Let's go into a different gate that not many people are at. Let's hide behind a camel, you know, whatever. Let's do it on the down low. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus enters the city in the grandest spectacle possible. He creates a picture. He creates a picture. And if you were to read the Old Testament, there are times when the prophets would say the message of God to the people and the people just, just don't quite get it. They proclaim the words of God, but the people don't quite get it. And so what happens during those times is that there are times that the prophets then move to a dramatic picture. They actually act out a picture. If you don't understand or you don't get these words, perhaps you'll get what you'll see. Jesus is basically putting into action a parable. He's putting into action his words. He is, he is saying a message through this picture that he creates. It is the definitive declaration of who he is. He is offering himself up as the Messiah. And it was time for them to either accept or reject him. 
However, the fact that Jesus makes this bold statement does not mean that the people who were hearing the statement, that were witnessing this statement, actually understood what was going on. In fact, we know that they didn't. We know that they didn't. In the book of John, as he writes this account, what's interesting is that the people who are closest to Jesus, his own disciples, his own followers, the one he did life with, the one that he told this truth to over and over again, they see what's happening and they don't get it. In John 12, 16, it says, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. They don't get it. And the interesting thing is that Jesus knows they don't get it. He knows that they don't see what's happening. And he has an amazing response. Jesus weeps. His heart breaks. In Luke, we read, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you would only know, if you could only see what could bring you peace? But you don't see it. And it breaks his heart. And he weeps. He weeps. They don't see the truth. Jesus' deliberate declaration of truth is somehow only partially caught. It's only partially understood. There's an incomplete interpretation. Jesus gives a deliberate declaration, but it is received with an incomplete interpretation. The people see Jesus for who he is. They say the right words. They see that Jesus is the redeemer, but they don't realize what they need to be redeemed from. They recognize that Jesus is the one who can deliver them, the one who can redeem them, but they don't see what they need to be redeemed or delivered from. And so they shout. And the word that they shout is the word Hosanna. Hosanna. And Hosanna is an interesting word. It means save. Save now. But it, it kind of went on a journey. And so by the time that Jesus enters Jerusalem, this word is used more as an exclamation of praise. It still means save. It still means save now. The word translates the same way. But the context of this word has changed. And so it becomes a word of praise. In fact, at times, the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the Passover were greeted with this word. The words were correct, but their meaning was not. You see, the original intention of that word was not really a word of praise. In the Old Testament, 
in 2 Samuel 14.4 and 2 Kings 6.26, we read examples of this word. Now, if you were to turn there in your English Bible, you wouldn't see Hosanna because you're reading from an English Bible. But in Hebrew, that word is used in both of those instances. And in both of those stories, we read about a woman in each story, a different woman in each story. And in each story, this woman is in front of a different king, a different woman, a different king, a different woman, a different king. And they use this word, and it is a heart-wrenching cry from the very depth of their being. Save. They come before their king, and they cry out, save now, save me. And I would say that if the people crying out, Hosanna, knew what they were to be redeemed from, if they really knew what they needed to be delivered from, Hosanna would not have simply been a shout of praise. It would have been a heart cry to the only one who could save them. Save. Save now. You see, the saving that the people desired was self-motivated. It was nationalistic. They were looking at the external surroundings. They were looking at their external factors. And Jesus was looking at their internal need. They're looking all around them at what's surrounding them, their, 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 their situation that they're in. And they're looking at that as the reason they need to be saved. And Jesus is looking at something far deeper and far more serious. And so they cry out, and they recognize Jesus as king, but they don't quite get it. In Luke 19, it says that they cry out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They call Jesus king. They recognize that he is the one who will bring peace. <coughs> They shout out the right words. Then why is Jesus weeping? Why is Jesus weeping? If they're saying the right stuff, if they're calling him king, if they're saying that the peace comes from him, why is he weeping? You see, it's one thing for me to acknowledge that Jesus is the king. It's another thing for me to acknowledge that Jesus is my king. It's one thing for me to acknowledge that Jesus is the king. It's a whole different ballgame to acknowledge Jesus as my king. One is based off of an agreement to an intellectual fact. It is, an, is a mental agreement to truth. The other has a foundation of relationship. If you haven't been to our Quakertown campus, and for those in Quakertown, you know this, that we actually meet at Quakertown Christian School. And so what happens on a Sunday is that a bunch of people get up really early. They're amazing people. And they get to the campus, and they unload all of these cases from these containers, and they wheel them into the school, and they transform that school into Calvary Church. 
And at the end of the day, they pack up all of those cases and they wheel it back into the containers. And it goes back to being Quakertown Christian School. But throughout the week, myself and the Quakertown staff, we actually have offices in that building. It's a separate entrance for the church offices. But occasionally, we have to go get something from backstage, or we have to go get the mail, or we have, we have to go through the halls of the school. And so what happens when that occurs is that we take this ID badge that we have that shows that we are allowed to be inside the school, and we walk around and we go to where we need to be. And so what's pretty cool about that is that for the past year, I've had the privilege of being able to walk through those hallways and my three children, my three younger children, actually go to that school. So occasionally I'll see them. And it's, and it's great. It's really cool to see them. And so I remember one day I was going over to backstage and I'm coming out of there and, and I'm walking into the hallway and I see two second graders over by the water fountain. And as I start to walk down the hallway, I hear, Is that Justice's dad? I think so. I think that's Justice's dad. Yep, that's Justice's dad. And so I turn around and I wave at them and they wave back and then I keep walking down the hallway. And that's cool. I mean, that's, that's cool because I got cred now. <laughs> I'm Justice's dad. You know what I'm saying? Let me tell you about a different interaction though. See, sometimes I go through the hallway and the second grader I see is justice. <laughs> and this is what I see when I see justice. When justice sees me, his eyes grow about five times bigger than normal. And they begin to sparkle with excitement. A big smile breaks out across his face as he waves me excitedly like this. And then when he's given the opportunity, he runs to me and he gives me this big hug. What's the difference? You see, those second graders knew that I was Justice's dad. Justice knows me as dad. The second graders knew the truth. They knew that this was a fact. I was Justice's dad. Justice knows me. And he knows that I am dad. One is just an intellectual understanding. The other is an outcry of the heart. It is built on relationship. There is a need to move past information when it comes to Jesus. Jesus. And move towards relationship. Jesus is the king. That's true. But is he your king? Jesus is the king. That is true. But is he your king? You see, the people that were shouting, they might have called him king but they weren't under his rule. They weren't under his rule. And so Jesus gives another picture. He makes this, this declaration. 
this deliberate declaration of who he is, that he is king, he is the Messiah. He understands that it is incompletely interpreted, that there is an incomplete interpretation. And he doesn't let this slide. He begins to explain that there will be proof that shows that your heart matches up to your words. And so he gives an explicit expectation by creating another picture. He creates another picture, and in that picture, he gives an explicit expectation. You see, we get to this weird story of Jesus and the fig tree. And it's weird, right? You kind of weird it, you kind of weird it out when you read it. You're like, what's going on with Jesus? He had a bad day. He was cranky. He was hangry. So Jesus goes up to this tree, and, and, and there's no fruit, and he curses the tree. And it's kind of like, you're like, did Jesus really say that? Well, the disciples heard him. It says it right there, and the passage goes, the disciples heard him. Almost like the writer's like, yeah, I know, this sounds crazy. This isn't about the tree. It has nothing to do with the tree. It's about us. And you have to understand something about fig trees in order to understand why it's about us. Why it's about the people that he was going to meet. Full disclosure. I'm a city boy. I know nothing about gardening. I don't know how to farm. My green thumb is limited to a wet paper towel with a lima bean in it. That's it. That's all how I know how to do. But I do know how to Google. And it's amazing, when you Google things, you find out things. And I found out some stuff about fig trees. Fig trees are unique because they have two fruits. They have two fruits. They have the fruit that you normally associate with a fig tree. And then they have these first fruits, these little nodules. And so what happens is, is when the fig tree is in leaf, when there are leaves on the tree, these little nodules these first fruits form. And so what I learned was is that the travelers of those days would go to these trees and they would pick these little first fruits, these little nodules, and they would eat them and they would be satisfied. This would be their tasty treat. But this wasn't simply a snack. These first fruits were actually identity markers. You see, if you went to a tree and there were leaves on the fig tree, but there were none of these first fruits, you knew something about that tree. Without the first fruits, what you knew about the tree was this. It was diseased. It was diseased and it was dying. And so what looked good on the outside, what for all intents and purposes, looked fine, was actually dying on the inside, diseased, and sick. And so Jesus, right after this interaction with the fig tree, 
He goes and he walks into the temple. He goes into the center of the Jewish religion, the Jewish customs, the Jewish traditions, and he goes in there and it's busy. It's Passover week. There's all this stuff happening. There, there's this hubbub. Everyone is doing what they traditionally should do. Everyone is going about and Jesus goes in and there's this righteous anger as he clears out the temple, as he shouts at them and says, you have made my father's house into a den of thieves. Everything looked good on the outside, but on the inside, Something was horribly wrong. All of the traditions, all of the religious rituals, all of the things that they were supposed to do in their worship, the actions were happening, but on the inside, they were sick and diseased. You see, Jesus gives an explicit expectation. If you're healthy on the inside your fruit would be healthy. Jesus' expectation, good fruit. Good fruit. And this was the problem with the celebration that occurred. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Everyone is saying the right thing. They're doing the right thing. They're waving the branches. They're, they're doing everything they're supposed to do. Everything that they're doing is right and yet Jesus weeps. He sobs tears of sorrow because what looked healthy on the outside was actually dying on the inside. There wasn't any fruit. We are known by our fruit. Our true fruit is our identity marker. Jesus provides us with a deliberate declaration of who he is. He deliberately declares that he is king. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is the Savior. Will we have an incomplete interpretation? Will we simply look at our external circumstances and just focus on that, or will we see Jesus for who he is? The proof is, is in our fruit. Jesus expects us to have good fruit. But how do we get there? How do we get to that point? I mean, we know that it's not by doing the right things. They were doing the right things. They were saying the right things. But they were still diseased on the inside. It is only through Jesus first that we can have good fruit. We need to shift our understanding of Jesus simply being the king to Jesus being our king. I need to move from just intellectually agreeing that Jesus is the king and move towards Jesus being my king. How do we do that? Charles taught us four words last week. He talked about how we are to renovate and restore the process of our heart. And he looked at 1 John. 
And in 1 John, he read this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Charles gave us four words in response to that passage. Admission, confession, absolution, mission. Admission, confession, absolution, mission. Admission. Finally admitting that this is me. I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. And then confession. And confession isn't simply telling God something that he doesn't know, kind of revealing to God, hey, God, this is actually who I am. Surprise. God's God. He already knows. He knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows every being, every ounce of our being. Confession is getting in agreement with God. It's agreeing with what he sees and saying, what I'm doing is wrong. And then we get that fancy schmancy word that Charles gave us. That's where the seminary professor comes out. Absolution. What's absolution? Well, based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are forgiven. Based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Jesus gives us the words of forgiveness that we so desperately need. And because of that forgiveness, we are given a new mission. We are given a new mission. Our response is to go speak and live the message of the gospel. Living the good news of Jesus, we are to continue the mission that Jesus started. And so Charles gave us some homework last week in response to that. And it was two weeks of homework. You were supposed to do it from last Sunday to this Sunday, and then from this Sunday to next Sunday. So here's the deal. If you didn't do the homework from last Sunday to this Sunday, here's, here's the good news. Charles is in here. <laughs> you got the substitute teacher. And I'm going to give you grace because I'm the good one. <laughs> He's the mean one. I'm the good one. You, it's candy for everyone. It's great. But he's coming back next week. So you need to do your work from now until next Sunday. Some of you are like, I not only didn't do my assignment, I don't remember what I'm supposed to do. Well, I'm going to tell you. Here are the two assignments that you have. First, you are to love and serve someone specifically every day from now until Easter. 
specifically. So when you wake up in the morning, ask God to reveal who it is that you are to love and serve that day. Every day, from now until Easter, you are to love and serve someone specifically. The second thing is, you are to love and invite someone to our Easter services every day, from now until Easter. Every day, you are to love and invite someone to our Easter services. Some of you are like, "Mm, you snuck in that second one. Why is that so important? Here's the deal. If you actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is, if you have heard his deliberate declaration and your heart has responded, then your heart better break the same way his heart breaks for those who don't see. We have a message of hope that people desperately need to hear. Why do we want you to invite people? Because we want them to see Jesus. Go and invite people. You have good news. Share it. Share that good news. If we get in line with Jesus' mission, embracing that Jesus is who he says he is, then our life will produce good fruit. Good fruit. Let's be a church overflowing with good fruit. Admission, confession, absolution, and ultimately, mission. Let's continue where Jesus started. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the truth that you are the King. We thank you for that truth. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace that gives me the right to call you my king. That gives me the relationship that allows me to run to you with open arms and into your embrace. Lord, help us be a church that overflows with good fruit. Help us to love and serve and to love and invite this week. Not so that we somehow accomplish what we were told to do, but so that you can do what you need to do and change lives. We love you so much. Thank you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.